morning. Once again, you know, I want to share with you my favorite quote that's not in the Bible. Favorite non-biblical quote is from A.W. Tozer. He said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me, let me put it another way. Your everyday thoughts about Jesus' goodness steer the whole trajectory of your life. Your everyday thoughts about Jesus' goodness steer the whole trajectory of your life. And I have that on the screen. And when I'm not putting something else up there, it's just going to stay up there the whole time today. And here's why. It's the point of the passage we're in this morning. But I believe that if we can get that down, it really will steer the whole trajectory of our lives. That Jesus is good and our thoughts about his goodness will make all the difference in the world. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 11? We're going to look at Luke eleven fourteen to 36. And we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see some people questioning Jesus' goodness. We're also going to see some people really affirming Jesus' goodness, kind of a mixed bag. And Jesus, every time, is going to respond in one way or another by saying, no, I, I am good. And to the ones who say, yeah, you are good, Jesus, he's going to say, I'm even better than you thought. I'm even more good than you imagined. But before we get into this, Luke eleven fourteen to 36, can we all just recognize together that this scripture on first read is a really hard scripture to understand, okay? So you can give me a little grace, right? But let's just, let's just understand, this is a difficult scripture, and, and I, think it's most, I think it's difficult mainly because of this. We're not first century Jews. I think that what Jesus was saying here, as he was saying it, most of the people he was talking to got it right away. Where we are not Jewish, therefore we don't know our, the, the Old Testament and the laws really, really, really well, like to a T, like had it memorized like they did. Um, and we live in the 21st century, right? It's the 21st, I always get that. Is it, right? I, 20th, 21st. Anyone here with me today? Thank you. Thank you for the help. Um, you can respond. It's okay. I don't bite too hard. And uh, no, 21st century versus the first century, okay, in, in Palestine, modern day Palestine. So it's, it's just, it's very, very, very different. So we're going to try to make some sense of it. But I want you to really look at the scripture, okay? If, if you don't have a Bible app, download one now. I want you to take a good look at it. And listen really well as I speak this morning or you're going to get lost. Okay, just kind of a forewarning. Um, but it's, it's going to be all right. It's going to be good. This, this message that Jesus is bringing, though, is incredible. So I'm going to frame this whole passage around this question, is Jesus good? Is he good? So Luke eleven fourteen. Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. So, the crowds, what's their answer to, is Jesus good? 
It's yes, absolutely. They were amazed, it says. Of course he's good. He just drove out a demon from a dude who couldn't talk. And now the guy can talk. Yes, Jesus is not just good. He's incredible. He's amazing. But that wasn't the only opinion in the crowd. Verse 15, some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So their answer to this, is Jesus good, is no. Quite the opposite. Jesus drove out demons by the power of Beelzebul, that is, the devil. Not only is Jesus not good, he's the opposite of good. He's a puppet for the prince of evil. That's what they believed. Verse 16, it says, Others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. So their answer here is, nope, Jesus isn't good. Prove yourself, Jesus. Yeah, you cast out a demon, but was that really from God? Are you actually good? Probably not. But just on the off chance that you are, prove it. Do a sign. And verse 17, knowing their thoughts, he told them. Now, before we get to what he told them, get this. Get the irony here. They wanted a sign from God, and Jesus immediately reads their thoughts and responds to them like he knows what they were thinking. He actually did give them a sign, and they didn't even realize it. Now, apparently these naysayers, the people in verses 15 and 16, and these doubters were just grumbling privately, okay? So the crowd in general, all Jesus was heard audibly from them was, wow, that you're amazing, this is amazing. But privately to one another, they're going, yeah, I think he's driving out this demon with the power of the devil, and I, I don't know about this guy, he, we need a sign. And Jesus responds to this. I mean, if this isn't a sign from heaven, what is, right? But these people didn't need a sign from heaven. They said they wanted one, but what they actually needed was new hearts and new attitudes toward Jesus. So, verse 17, knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus here is confronting their mindset. And here's their mindset. Their mindset is this, that Jesus is evil. Or at least he's not God. He's not the Messiah. Now, Jesus responds to this really logically and matter-of-factly, and he just kind of lays it out for them. He goes, okay, well, a house divided against itself falls. So to to kind of get this into our heads, here's what Jesus is saying um, in the spiritual realm. He's saying, pretend you're um, you're in combat, okay? You're... You're in the U.S. Army and you're going into combat and you have snipers up in some buildings and they're taking people out in front of you and your your whole platoon is going forward and then suddenly the snipers start taking out your own platoon. You'd be in trouble. 
you would lose that fight before it even began. Because they've turned on one another. And Jesus is saying the same is true spiritually. See, Satan already has, hello, God against him. And so he's already going to lose the fight. But if Satan starts sniping his own, he's doomed before he ever gets started. And in verse 19, Jesus goes, If I'm driving out demons by the power of the devil, who are your sons driving out demons by? Or not necessarily literally their sons, but who are your people driving out demons? That would happen. People would cast out demons. And Jesus is saying, hey, if I'm driving them out by the devil's power, you know my track record. These, this crowd would have known Jesus' track record as being a, someone who's going around healing people and speaking words of life and truth. I mean, going around doing miracles. His, his reputation precedes him, and he's saying, if I'm doing that with my track record, and you're suspect of my power, how much more suspect are your own people who are driving out demons? That's what he's saying here. In verse 20, he goes, I'm clearly driving out demons by the power, by the finger of God. I am good. Quite literally, I'm not bad. I'm on the good team. And so next, he makes this point even more clearly and emphatically. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so given all that Jesus said, we can get to this part of the scripture and go, what is going on here? But remember what Jesus was just talking about. Who would be the strong man and then the stronger man? I think it's pretty clear. The strong man is the devil, and he's got his estate and his possessions. He, he uh, owns, quote-unquote, the world spiritually at this point in time, but a stronger man is coming in, Jesus. And he's coming in and destroying the devil and his works, just uprooting it. And so verse 23, he's saying, you're either with me or you're against me. He's saying there's no Switzerland's in this war, right? There's no neutral. He's saying, I am good, but not only that, I'm the only good one. Choose this day who you will serve. In verse 24, he clears things up a little bit. Not. Uh, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person... It roams through waterless places looking for rest and not finding rest. It then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. Go a little cross-eyed at this point. Let me help you understand here. It's all within context. Jesus is continuing the same thing he's been saying. Let me tell you what this isn't first. Verses 24 through 26 are not meant to be a course on how to drive demons out properly. That's not what Jesus is doing here. 
He's actually driving home. Verse 20, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, I'm beginning the work of bringing God's kingdom to earth. That's what my ministry is doing. I'm not just casting out a few demons and leaving. So let me really help you understand what he's talking about in verses 24 to 26. Imagine that you have a basement that has some foundation issues and you get some water in there. And I'm sure nobody in Boone has that problem. But imagine it gets real bad and your basement is just flooded. So you hire someone to come and not just clean up the flood because you want to mess with it and it's pretty nasty down there. You, you, you hire them to clean it up and then fix the foundation. But imagine if they came in, cleaned it up, got all the water, all the junk out of there, made it spick and span, maybe even recarpeted it, like made it look pristine, but didn't deal with the foundation issues. Who cares? right? They only did half of what you hired them to do, and they did the half that really didn't matter that much, because it rains again, snow melts, you're going to have a basement flooded again. See, here's what Jesus is saying. Get this. He's saying, I'm doing both. I'm getting rid of evil, and that's what my ministry is starting to do now. I'm getting rid of evil, but I am not just leaving. I'm going to replace it with my goodness. I'm not just getting rid of some evil spirits and evil. If that's all I did, they just come back in stronger force. I'm getting rid of all evil and replacing it with the goodness of God. See, Jesus is so good. He doesn't just clean the house of the bad. He replaces the bad with the good, and the good is God himself. The good news is that Jesus is starting this ministry, this work of bringing the kingdom of God that will climax when he comes back one day and there's a new heavens and a new earth. He's starting this work that half of the, half of the work is he's getting rid of evil. There will be just the absence of evil and the devil, and he's always sec- already secured the victory by his death and resurrection. But it's not just that. That's only half. The other half of the good news is he's bringing his all-encompassing, satisfying, peaceful presence. He will take evil away, but replace it with himself. He really is good. That's what, that is what he's trying to get at in these verses that at first read are a little confusing. Is Jesus good? We finally see someone who gets it. Verse 27. As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. Now this woman is going... So this question, is Jesus good? She's going, yes, yes, yes. And as a woman and probably a mom herself, she's thinking how great it would have been to be Jesus' mother. So she exclaims, wow, Jesus, you are so good and great, and so I'm going to bless your mother. And Jesus responds, verse 28, he said, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now this word rather doesn't discredit what this woman just said. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. Instead, Jesus is saying 
that the same blessing that my mom has is on anyone who listens and obeys God. That's what my mom did, right? Think of the Christmas story. Mary, she listened and obeyed God. And so he's saying to this gal, yes, yes, I am good. And yes, my mom is blessed because she listens and obeys God. But that same blessing on my mom is available to anyone who follows me. See, that's how good I am. It's not just my mom who can receive this blessing. It is you. It is anyone who follows after me and listens and obeys. And so verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. So is Jesus good? Well, Jesus is saying, well, according to this generation that he's talking to, they're going, no. They're saying, prove it. We want a sign. He's addressing what the people were saying in their thoughts in verse 16. We want a sign. You're a fake, Jesus. Prove it. We want a miraculous sign right now. And Jesus responds by going, you want a sign? I am the sign. And you're missing it. See, Jonah, if you're not familiar with Jonah, was a prophet in the Old Testament. And there's a whole book about him. It's a very short read, well worth going to. The youth group right now is walking through it. And I had the privilege of teaching on it this past Wednesday, in fact, for youth group. That's what we got on our drum head there. So if you're in 6th through 12th grade, not, not coming, you should come Wednesday night. It's a good time, but they're in Jonah right now, so this is very fresh in my mind. God kind of knew that and threw me a bone and was like, here you go. You can have this fresh in your mind so you can teach this decently on Sunday. Um, but Jonah shows up at this wicked city. Okay, I just fast forwarded through like half the book, but Jonah was actually a pretty terrible prophet and was trying to run from God and God wouldn't let him. So here he is finally doing what God told him to do. And he shows up at this wicked city, Nineveh, and all he says to them, this is, I quote from the book of Jonah, this is his message, this is his sermon, okay? Imagine if I got up here on Sunday and this was my sermon. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's it. Can you imagine that? Got up here, in 40 days, Boone will be demolished. Okay, we need to find a new pastor. Um, this, is, this is what Jonah's doing. This was his message. What a simple, lame message. Yet, God uses it. And they repent. They turn from their sin and they turn to God and they trust in God and they beg for his grace and his mercy and God gives it to them. If Jonah's lame presence, because he was just kind of a lame dude, and his lame message turned the Ninevites' hearts to God, how much more should Jesus' spectacular presence and incredible message turn our hearts to God and turn their hearts to God? See, Jesus is saying here, you guys want a sign? I am the sign and you're missing it. And the sign I'm going to give you is going to be mind-blowing. And this sign of Jonah that he's talking about is more than just Jesus' presence. 
is Jesus' death and resurrection. How do I know that? Well, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. The best interpreter of God is God, right? So let's look at a similar circumstance where Jesus gives a similar teaching in Matthew 12, and it's on the screen for you. So this will look familiar right away. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Looks the same so far. Verse 40, though, we get clarification. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah we can clearly see from Matthew 12, 40 is Jesus' death and resurrection. Just like Jonah was in a fish three days. He was trying to run from God, got thrown overboard. Long story short, God has this big fish swallow him up and then spit him out after he finally repents. But Jesus, just like Jonah gets swallowed up and spit out, Jesus will be dead three days and then rise from the dead victoriously. This is the sign of Jonah. And Jesus is responding here. You guys want a sign? I'm the sign. You've missed it. And the sign I'm giving to you will be mind-blowing. I will literally be crucified and then rise from the dead, but you're going to miss it even then because you don't believe that I'm good. These naysayers that Jesus is addressing, this generation that he is addressing, had Jesus with them physically, and they're going to watch his death and resurrection and still deny him. They said they wanted a sign, but they're missing it. Now, verse 31, before we get there, this next part points out another Gentile. Gentiles are just non-Jews, God's chosen people. So then he points out another Gentile. The Ninevites were Gentiles, very far from God. And he's going to point out someone else who recognizes the goodness of God, who's a Gentile, and that's the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba. And I'll, describe, I'll explain that in a second, but... Luke, back in Luke 11, verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented of Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. So let me give you some context that they would have understood. So 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba visits the king of Israel, who at that time was Solomon. And Solomon was the wisest man on earth. God granted him this gift of being the wisest person to ever live. 1 Kings 10, 9, we see the queen of Sheba Addressing Solomon, he said, Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. Why do I share that? Leave that up for a second. I share this because it helps us understand Jesus' point in Luke 11. A Gentile woman. Both of those things are 
are not high status items at the time in first century Palestine. If you were a Gentile, especially the people he's talking to, not a good deal. If you were a woman, you were also of low status at that time. wasn't right. It's just what it, what it was. And he's saying if a Gentile woman understood how eternally loving and good God is because of Solomon, how much more is God loving and good? That's what Jesus is saying here. This scripture, and you miss it because we get confused by it, but verses 31 and 32 are actually the crescendo of this whole scripture. He's saying, you have someone wiser than the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, with you, pointing to the love and the goodness of God. And you have someone greater than a prophet in scripture, Jonah, and I am him. God in the flesh, Jesus, the definition of goodness. And I'm right here in front of you today. Jesus is saying over and over again in stronger fashion than just saying it outright, I am good. In fact, I'm even more good than you thought or ever dared imagine. And now that Jesus has thoroughly declared and defended his goodness, he gives an invitation to trust his goodness moment by moment. Verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad... Your body is also full of darkness. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. So let's just break this down simply. What's the light? In scripture, over and over we see the light is Jesus. But in context here, With everything that Jesus has said and everything that's happened leading up to these verses and his teaching, Jesus is either light or he's darkness. He's either good or he's evil. And so light here represents the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus. Now, we have that established. Now, what's the eye? Verse 34, it says, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad... Your body's also full of darkness. What is the eye? What is the gatekeeper of the goodness of Jesus to our minds and to our hearts and our whole lives? Here's what it is. It's our thoughts. And this is key. This is where we're really bringing it home. I know we've walked through some tough stuff in this scripture, but this is where it gets real. Your thoughts are the eye. Let me show you this. Let me insert what we just established together in verse 34. So your eye, your thoughts are the lamp of the body. And when your eye, your thoughts are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. It's full of the goodness of Jesus. But when it, your thoughts are bad, your whole body is also full of darkness. So let me just insert them and take out the brackets. Your thoughts 
are the lamp of the body. When your thoughts are healthy, the whole body is also full of the goodness of Jesus. But when your thoughts are bad, your body is also full of darkness. I hardly need to say anything else about that. Your everyday thoughts about Jesus' goodness will change the whole trajectory of your life. Verses 33 to 36 are not saying, get out there and share the light of Jesus. Don't hide it under a bushel. No, uh, that's, that's true. Get out there and share the light of Jesus. And that's taught in other similar passages, but that is not what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, get your thoughts about Jesus' goodness right, and everything else will fall into place. Verse 35, he's saying, hey, take care that the light, the goodness of Jesus in you is not darkness. How could Jesus' goodness become dark? There's the question. Well, it's not actually his goodness that becomes dark. It's his thoughts of his goodness that become dark. You with me? When do our thoughts of Jesus' goodness start to grow dark? When our circumstances start to grow dark. When our circumstances aren't good. And here's the key. Get this. Jesus' goodness does not change when your circumstances change. Do you hear me? I need to hear that often. You need to hear this often. Jesus' goodness does not change when your circumstances change. When your emotions change. Jesus' goodness is still the same. This is incredible news. Jesus is still for you and loved you to the point of death on a cross, even when your circumstances are terrible. Jesus still made you his child. If you are in Christ, if you follow him, if you believe in him, he is is yours and you are his and nothing can separate you from his love. Maybe you're like, yep, Matt, I know. I always believe and think that Jesus is good no matter what. Yeah, right. Let me tell you about a day I had recently that I'm not so proud of. The day started out fantastic, actually. I had some good time in prayer. I was driving down to Ankeny to meet with some pastors that I meet with on occasion um, to actually refine each other on preaching um, and just to see how we're doing and pray for each other. And so I'm on my way down. I'm praying on the way for people, for, for many of you actually. And it was great. Enjoyed that time. And then, um, and then I get there. Had a great time with these guys. Had some Chick-fil-A like any good pastor's meeting does. And, and I'm driving home and I call my wife and we had plans that night. Like most people when they have free time, they're going to make a lip sync video because that's a lot of fun. No, no one else does that. But that's, you know, that's what we like to do. So we're going we're gonna to do that with some friends. And I would maybe gotten a little extra this time in preparing for it. Um, costumes, lighting, blocking. I may have even rented a smoke machine. I don't know. But um, uh, so I called, I called my wife, Heather, and I'm like, oh, it's going to be sweet, you know? Yeah. And, and she's like, I'm sick, and it's not happening. Okay. 
So all the planning, all the preparing, all the excitement, gone. Not that big a deal, right? Another time, just have a quiet night at home. It wasn't that big a deal, but it wasn't my thoughts. It's a huge deal in my thoughts, and the next 24-ish hours were a battle in my mind. Now, it wasn't completely devoid of prayer or Jesus, those 24 hours. I did a lot of crying out for help to remain calm. (laughs) But it could not be said that I focused in on the goodness of Jesus. And I had a few not-so-great moments outwardly, but nothing major by God's grace. By God's grace, I wasn't a complete wreck. I maybe was a little louder with the kids a couple times and went out into the garage at one point and got some frustration out on a towel. I thought that was healthy. It was, but it was kind of weird. Um, Inwardly, though, outwardly, it, it wasn't that big a deal. Praise God. Inwardly, though, it was a battle. It was a fight because I was frustrated, and I was frustrated with my circumstances, and I was frustrated with sickness. Amen? Anyone been frustrated with sickness in the last couple of years? Like just in general, sickness, right? And then I got frustrated with myself for getting frustrated. You been there? Like I'm getting, this is crazy. It sounds crazy to even articulate, but this is what was happening. I'm sure you've been there. I'm sure you've been there about sickness. And never did I have a thought that God isn't good. I never thought that. I never thought, oh God, you're not good right now. That wasn't, I didn't get there. But my thinking and actions said otherwise. My thinking and my actions said that I didn't believe God was good. You know what I never did until about 24 hours later? I never reminded myself of the unchanging goodness of Jesus. And when I did, I didn't even remind myself. It was a random worship song that happened to come on. And the next day, when I opened up about this to a friend, they pointed me to the unchanging goodness of Jesus. But the reality of the light the goodness of Jesus inside me had grown dark. But the truth that Jesus was good still remained. Now, I don't share this because it was the most intense circumstance that I've ever been in, not even close. I don't share this because I'm proud of it. I'm actually quite ashamed. I share it because it's an everyday example from everyday life that you've probably been in recently. Someone getting sick and your plans being ruined. And I want to help save you from the same mistake. So how can we steer our thoughts to the unchanging goodness of Jesus when life is not good? There's a lot of strategies out there, and we don't have time for me to lay a bunch out. But I want to give you a couple tools, a couple resources, a couple books, a couple that have been written in the last couple years even. And one, I got them up here for you, is by Craig Rochelle called Winning the War in Your Mind. The second one is by Louis Giglio called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. And what's cool about this is that on the Bible app that many of you maybe are using right now, um, there's Bible reading plans for these as well. So if you're like, "Ah, I don't want to buy a book, you you can get some of the content through that. But 
there's some great resources because I know I, I'm just touching the surface, but another strategy that I and others throughout the centuries of following Jesus have found helpful, and you're not going to be surprised by this at all, is Scripture. But this is what I would call fighter Scripture. What do you need to have on tap when your thoughts are going berserk? These, these fighter scriptures change often for me as my thought patterns and circumstances change. But here's my go-tos, okay? And you need to have your go-tos as well, and they're probably going to be a bit different than mine. Psalm 18.1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I just love it because it calls me back to my first love. I love you, O Lord. But it reminds me, he is my strength. I'm not my strength. They're not my strength. My circumstances aren't my strength. He's my strength, and I love him, and he loves me. Psalm 16, 8, in your presence there's fullness of joy. It reminds me, my joy is not dependent on what's going on around me. My joy is dependent on the presence, presence of Jesus, and he's present with me right now. And 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I love that last line. And that's what I cling to. I am. It's not profound. It's simple. But it changes the trajectory of my thoughts. I am a child of God. So we are. Now this would be a great discussion over lunch today or or in connection groups on how you go about steering your thoughts to the goodness of Jesus, and I encourage you to have that. But let me leave you with this. Your everyday thoughts about the goodness of Jesus steer the whole trajectory of your life. Don't let them run wild. And if that seems like an impossibly difficult task to not let your thoughts run wild, you're not alone. And I want you to remember that. If this seems impossible, you are not alone. If you are in Christ, you have God himself in you and with you. And look around. I literally want you to look around right now. You're not on this journey alone. You have brothers and sisters in the family of God that are always just a text or a call away that I'm sure would be there to help remind you of Jesus' goodness. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we are not alone as we fight the battle of our mind. And it's a daily, moment-by-moment moment battle. Some days are great, some days are terrible, but we, we know, God, we know that regardless of how our thoughts are moving and, and being churned around, Lord, you are good and you are God and you haven't changed. So Jesus, I pray that you would give us strength from the Holy Spirit to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus. That we would no longer let our thoughts just carry us around like we're prisoners to our minds. But instead, Jesus, that you would give us the strength we need to steer our thoughts to you who doesn't change. And I pray for those in here, Lord, who really struggle 
And they've tried some of these strategies. And they've tried lots of things that you would bring breakthrough for them, Jesus. And I pray that if, if they're there, that they would get some help. Whether it's counseling, seeing a doctor, pills, whatever. That they would be willing and humble enough to try to get some real help, Jesus. And that as they do that, you would honor that and give them victory in their minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.